Welcome. You are listening to the Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm Meryl Arnett, mama, meditator, and head of mindfulness for Shoreline Meditation App. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a 20-minute guided meditation. If these meditations support you and your practice, please consider donating to the show to support its continued growth, new offerings, and its ever-expanding team. You can find the link in today's show notes or simply visit merylarnett.com and click on podcast. All right, y'all, let's practice. Okay, friends, I have a really, really fun and thrilling guest to introduce you to today. I am sharing a conversation with my friend, my colleague, my teacher, Shanali Banerjee. And I want to start just by sharing a little story of when I first really came into relationship, I guess in a deep way, with Shanali. Um, which was many years ago at this point, horribly. Uh, And Shanali hosted a circle for some yoga teachers, myself included, small group of women. And we would meet once a week. We'd sit in a circle at the yoga studio that we all worked at. And Shanali would guide us in mantra and chanting and singing as a group. And um, I am not a singer. If you ask me to sing something, I will turn beet red and say, no, thank you, and run the other way, as were most of the women in the circle. Not all, but most of the women, I think, felt that same way. And we really, over the course of a year, maybe, we learned the power of sharing our voices together. And that was that was the start of a... I don't know, I'm going to call it a decade, uh, relationship with Shanali. So Shanali, I'm so happy to talk to you today. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Meryl, so much for having me. This is a thrill for me. I'm so glad. So I am envisioning that we're just going to talk about the power of mantra to start, perhaps. Uh, So mantra is a type of meditation that I don't teach and I, I know the power of it thanks to you. And I thought it would be really interesting. Maybe you could start just with a little bit of your background, like how this became part of your life and your practice. And then we'll talk a little bit about maybe what mantra meditation actually is for listeners that have never done it before. Sure. I am. I was born a singer. So I came out and, you know, all babies cry and all of that, but pretty quickly, I was as kids always are, but singing, singing, la, la, la. And I, I sort of, that was a a place that was a place of origin was song was my way of expressing myself in the world. And so that led me into, you know, obsession with music, which so many of us are, whether we sing or not, so many of us feel music throughout our lives, music, soundtracks of our lives um, is so central to so many of us. So, so like so many of us, that's, that's my path. And then, um, and as a singer, trained singer, uh, musical theater major, thought I'd be on Broadway and um, 
really, I found mantra very significantly. I'd moved to New York City under the umbrella that I was going to become an actor and never went on any auditions and sort of hit that crisis point. I was maybe 22 years old. I do not want to be an actor, but everything I had done was leading me to that moment. And I had to kind of extract myself and figure out what what I would do next. And I, um, in that sort of crisis period, figuring things out, also started diving into yoga, going to my first yoga classes ever. And I'm so grateful because my first yoga classes ever were really strong physical posture practices. And I was extremely out of shape. I was drinking a lot and hanging, slumming at the bars, all that kind of lifestyle. But at the end of these practices, I would just be dying and feeling so terrible about myself. But the teacher, there was a harmonium in the room, Jiva Mukti Yoga, and the teachers would start playing this harmonium, this drone sound is so beautiful. And we'd be lying and resting on the ground and then they would sing to us and they would sing some mantra, some Sanskrit chant that I didn't know that what the words meant, but I instantly felt held and comforted and able to face the like really complex emotions that I was feeling. So, you know, the rest is history, so to speak. I dove into yoga practices, dove in then to learning more about mantra. Some of my first teachers said some really wise words to me, which was about not diving too deeply into the meanings of the mantras to trust the sounds and to, and as again, as a singer, I came to it easily creating sounds that were opening parts of me that needed to be opened up. I was like, had no idea what I was going to do with my life. And yeah, and then just came to know more and more about that. And, you know, I left that musical theater land, that land of like being a professional singer, you know, performer, and then started finding that within this kind of more sacred practices and sharing that with others and, and people responding and and yeah, and so now here I am 20, over 20 years later, almost, uh, it is essential part of my life and my practice. Yeah. And so talk us through a little bit. One of the questions I get more than any other question, and you know, I'm not a mantra teacher, is, is mantra out loud or is mantra silent? Oh, it can be. Yeah. So talk a little bit to the listener who doesn't know what mantra means and has never done a meditation that involves sound. Talk to us about this practice. So there are a number of factors. For many of us who do not feel connected to our voices, there's like a disembodiment when we are not confident or connected to our own voices and to making sound, even with our own, within our own private spaces. People feel sheepish. They feel self-conscious. They feel like they're not good enough. And so in the same way, we want to overcome that type of negativity that's guided within, we can practice doing this kind of birthright, which we were all born with. Every single one of us, it's only our cultural conditioning that has taught so many of us, so many people that we, we shouldn't be singing or we shouldn't be making sound. It's the silencing that we experience culturally within our society that shuts us all down. And so coming into actual out loud mantra can be a huge and critical part of people's reclaiming of their birthright. 
of being here on this earth and saying, I, yes, I take up space and I make sound fundamental. So on the other side, mantra can absolutely, so that's like uh, one way, a psychological sort of pathway. The other thing is about mantra sound of Sanskrit has all kinds of like ways of touching in on the, when you make sound, vibration moves through the body from the, the mouth, from the belly, and that vibration can open you up on many different levels. Mantra, when you do it out loud, also it captures your attention. So it's harder to drift off into like, oh shoot, I should have taken the chicken out of the freezer for dinner when you are doing something out loud and, and it forces you to pay attention more clearly. So that can really be helpful when you're working in a way to have a regular practice. Yeah, I absolutely found that to be the case. It's an incredible anchor to meditation practice. And, you know, this is a really um, maybe a strange leap, but as you were talking about sort of the psychological piece, I was having this memory I think it was this year, but maybe it was last year. I can't remember. Um, but it was within COVID pandemic times. There was a New York Times article about these women who were essentially forming primal scream circles. And they would get together and go out in the woods and just scream. And I mean, A, I love that probably more than anything on the planet. And I think every woman should have a primal scream circle. And B, it feels very connected to what you just said is like, like I'm sitting in my basement right now. There is nobody else in my house. It is totally empty. And I would feel weird just like letting a scream rip out of my lungs. Right. And that says something pretty significant. I'm alone in my own space. And I feel weird about letting a scream come out, you know, and I hadn't really thought about mantra as like a psychological, a connection, a psychological connection to mantra, but you really touched something. I think so interesting with that is just that reflection. I offer it to all of our listeners too. Like if you, where are you right now? And would you just start singing right now? I, I wonder. I wonder too. I think a lot of people would say no. And there's, you know, that, that no comes from a place of, I, again, I'll say conditioning and self-consciousness and, you know, fear and, uh, you know, it's all wrapped up in a lot of muck. And these practices, whether it's meditation or posture practice, chanting, dance, movement, whatever your pathway is, isn't it about freeing ourselves from the muck and from that, the sense of feeling small or not worthy? I'll touch though on another very practical level of why you want to do mantra out loud is a disconnection that's very natural from our breath. Mm. And so when you do mantra consciously, you can align um, with your breath experience and, and strengthen and reconnect or do wonders for your breathing experience, which will do wonders for regulating your nervous system. So that's another reason to work with mantra out loud is that you have to inhale. Mantra occurs on the exhale. So the longer your mantra, let's say, if you're doing it all on one exhale, you have to cultivate that sort of that strength in your system to be able to do that mantra for that amount of time. And then you need the inhale to then create that next round of mantra. So it becomes like uh, like any conditioning, you know, you do your strengthen your biceps by doing your bicep curls or 
and such. So you, that's how you can use mantra to strengthen your breath apparatus when you're doing mantra out loud. There's also the meanings of the mantras that, you know, you connect into. And that's where when you start to do certainly a silent mantra, it is just harder to keep your thoughts on what you're doing. When you're doing it silently, again, your mind's going to wander like any other meditation practice. Oh, I forgot about this. Oh, my came, my mother called me. Oh, whatever that is. All those things will come in. But certainly you can do silent mantra. A tool could be, you know, keeping some mala beads or counting silently can help you keep track of your mantra practice and the silent practice. So in contrast to mantra being this out loud or song being out loud, song and mantra make the silence more potent or brings your awareness to the space without sound. And there's just as much kind of richness in that space as there is in the space of sound. So silent mantra can be, I don't know if the word is deeper. I don't like that because it's not a comparison, but there's an aura around it that's more introspective. Mm, I don't know how to put it into words. Because <laughs> I it, love that. It's the space of silence that's, that silence holds. And mantra, some of what you offer is in Sanskrit mm -hmm. and some is not, which I love. Yes, I do a lot of sort of singing or sacred call sacred song. I think there's so much benefit both to working in a language that's not your own and to working in the language that is your own. So in Sanskrit, again, some of my earliest teachers said, like, don't worry about what it means. And so you enter into this very, if you can, you know, be courageous enough to enter into the like intuitiveness of that and just the feeling of it and, and trusting that what you receive in those moments, which can be really, again, I like the space beyond words. I just, I, I think that that's an important space that we perhaps don't inhabit enough. We get very intellectual, get very analytical. The scientific jargon is really like, okay, we give that a lot of credence. And I think as a, like an artist by nature, I kind of don't care as much about that, all of that. And I, I really connect to the space in between, the space beyond words, the etheric world. And, uh, and, then, and then though, you know, so go back to working in your own language though is gonna then touch you because you do have an understanding of that language and that feels a little bit more like, you know, more like you perhaps. And then, so then you get that personalized connection to whatever it is you're chanting about. I have a memory. I, I wonder, I think, I don't think I'm making it up, but tell me if I am, but I feel like I have this memory, you know, when we sat in circle all those years ago, I know we started with Sanskrit mantra and I feel like at some point you were like, okay, we're going to do something in English. And I know it's going to feel a little bit harder to do it in English because we're all used to singing in a language that we don't speak, we don't understand, and we don't have any sort of attachment to and then the shift that came when you were like, right now sing in the language you speak in every single day. And I do remember it feeling different, both different in the sense that it was harder to do in a group because it was, you were, I was more conscious of like, how do I sound and am I good at this? And also there were words that I was like, ah, oh, it just like hits me right where I need to be hit, right where I want to be feeling. So I, I, I see both edges of that practice. And I, you know, I think one of my all time favorite 
And that's like a risky sentence, isn't it? All-time favorite. But one of my favorite Sanskrit mantras that I have sung with you on so many occasions is the Gayatri, Gayatri mantra, which is in Sanskrit. And as many times as we have sung it, and as many times as you have told me what it's about, aside from saying the word light, I really couldn't explain to somebody what it's about. And yet I have a very visceral response when I do this mantra. I realize this is on the spot. Feel free to say no. Would you like sing just like one verse of that? Of course, of course. And I'll do there are a couple different forms of this mantra too. There's a short form, a long form. I'll do the short form. Om Bhur Bhuvaspaha Tatsavitur Varanyam Bargo Devasya Dhimahi Iho Yona Prachuraya And instantly, I feel something from that. Yes. Yeah. That mantra addresses the, you know, the realms that we live in here and beyond. And Tat Tat is that sun. It it's a connection to the sun. Gayatri mantra is considered a goddess mantra. That sun, which is ever present and inspires within us a reflection that we are, we have within ourselves a light that's as brilliant as the sun. Mm. And uh, that's powerful, powerful central mantra for, again, just claiming ourselves as these beings that have a right to be here. Yeah. I think that's an important, it's powerful because, you know, society and our cultures, you know, are set up in such a way that not everyone feels that they have a place here. Not everyone feels that they have a right to be here. Not everyone's treated with love and respect and honor in any way, shape, or form. In fact, most people are not. And these, these, these mantras, these practices remind us that we come from this natural primal world. We are of it. That's one of my main teachings. We're not just on the earth, we're of the earth. So right away, that connection, when we all close our eyes, there's a, not everyone maybe, right? We all have different experiences. I don't like to say all of us, but when we close our eyes, we can still feel often at the, at the center of the forehead, a, a light. It's the light that comes in beyond the eyelids. It enters in and we can feel that light that is within us. And that light can guide us through all the difficulties that we face as humans of, of, of the modern world. And of course, this mantra is ancient. It's been chanted for, for e- eons, you know, so these difficulties being human and the work that we do to overcome those difficulties is is the heart of these practices. You know, you're really getting at the heart of why I wanted this conversation to happen when it is. And so this interview is airing right at the end of a series about political resilience. And my attempt with this series is really an invitation as much as possible to let go of the constant binary of us versus them, right versus left, winning and losing. And instead is an invitation to engage with something that is maybe deeper, is definitely more paradoxical, 
something that holds the discomfort of the moment. And one of the things I witness you do incredibly well is hold the discomfort of the moment and name it. Even when I look at your website, you like name it on the homepage of your website. You're like, this is difficult and I'm here for it. <laughs> and I love that because not all of us are here for it. And we, I think, I think we need as many wise people in the world as we can possibly find asking us to hold the space of difficulty. Engaging with democracy is difficult. It is not for the faint of heart. I, I could go like into a hundred of the different things you do to, you know, you hold ritual space, the I want you to talk about the threshold choir, but maybe first let's talk about circle of songs. You did something really amazing, mm. both in the political realm and in the sacred realm with circle of songs. Tell us about that. Sure. So um, this is very recent that I just birthed what God feels like a signature offering. And that really speaks to my like origins of my understanding and the way I practice. Um, again, going back to those early years in New York in my early 20s. Circle of Song, I created just after Roe v. Wade was overturned. So I was distraught like so many. Um, again, I'm, I'm from New York and Boston and, you know, more, more um, liberally minded. And so it was just shocking to me. And I have a daughter. It was absolutely shocking that Roe v. Wade was overturned. And I needed a way, as I do, I, you know, my right, I have a regular sacred practice. So I process my, the world and how I experience it through whether it's postures, meditation or song. And in that moment, that sort of grief and anger and outrage and despair um, knew that I needed to channel that into connecting with others who are feeling the same way and know the knowing, I mean, I am 47 years old and have had rights that now my daughter at 15 doesn't have living in Georgia. That is astounding to me. And I wanted to engage with that anger and that astonishment in an, in a way that I, again, doesn't sink me into non-action and despair. So it was like, how can I connect? How can I share this? And how can I continue to do the work that has been done so consciously since George Floyd, since before George Floyd, the Me Too movements, like any of these revolutionary movements that have been coming up, people have to come again and again and again, because we're getting pushed back and back and back at the same time. And so how do we come again and again? How do we build resiliency? For me, it's by touching into all the sacred sources of, of energy that allow me to feel like what I know I am and to do that in community and to, you know, get that to grow and build as much as possible so that we can then create action. Uh, so it was an eight week song series. Um, basically, we met for an hour every week on a Monday night and met with a group of people and we all learned songs that I've been singing again since I was in my 20s and connected to the natural world. We did mantra, we did chant, we did, we did all kinds of practices that, sure, they make us feel more hopeful, but they also bring us to a space of the truth of how we're feeling. So it isn't hope 
pretending that we're not feeling sad or mad anymore. And that's the thing. There's no bypassing here. For me, song and mantra, I have cried through many a mantra practice, right? And when it's hard to do mantra and cry at the same time. <laughs> that's the other place where silent mantra comes in is you can keep doing your repetitions even as you are in your emotions. And that is part of a huge part of my practice. Mm. What else can I say? Where's my through line? It was just became this really meaningful experience. In the last um, session we did, we were saying, gosh, we should all go meet at the polls and sing together because we want to keep ourselves hopeful. And we have the immediacy of the election and like that, the immediacy of these moments where things feel so kind of horrific or, or so celebratory, whatever's happening, like Biden won. Yay. You know, and but and that those are moments are so dramatic, but our our history, like these are there's a long game in all of this. These these processes, the democratic process takes time. And if we get sucked into the individual, like the crushing loss or or the uh, incredible win, you know, we're just on on a roller coaster constantly. So these songs are about creating a, a a steady through line where you can then process the loss of the gain, but there's a steadiness to wait, but this is who I am. This is how I want the world around me to be. I've lived it already. <laughs> I want to continue living it. I want to see change in the world. There's a huge evolution happening, revolution happening now where we are not interacting in the same way we used to. And that's a, such a good thing. It's, I don't think we should cling to the past. We should be, um, we could be moving into the betterment of our future iterations as individuals, of course, as groups and as, you know, states, countries, uh, as a, as a global collective. It's political resilience right there. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's so beautiful. That's, I, you put into words so much of what I reflect on and struggle with and, look to find that balance between the the fear of what might happen and the that longer term broader picture that we're all engaging with uh, and i love the invitation of mantra and chant being a through line to carry us through the emotional challenges of that and there's a beautiful history of that, you know, the civil rights movement and song as a anchor to the the sort of change that we want to see in the world. And I, I think that that is very much part of my something I connect with deeply. The, there's that power again as a singer, it just comes so naturally to me. So it's an easy place for me to start to use my voice. I, it was a gift. It was something I was born with. I didn't have to work very hard to cultivate. My voice, sure, I was a trained singer, but still it just comes I'm like, oh, this is the thing I can offer into the world and, um, and perhaps help. You know, I, um, I'm reflecting on something else that you taught me, which is the power of the labyrinth. And I noticed that you reference it on your website. And there was one sentence that I was like, Wow, I have never said those words. There, it's like a, an obvious sentence, but sometimes you never say the obvious thing. And when somebody does, you're like, "Oh my god!" Little mind blown emoji right there. And you reference the labyrinth, and you say, "You're never lost in a labyrinth." It makes me want to weep. You're never lost in a labyrinth. 
obviously that is anybody who's walked a labyrinth knows that's true. And yet it's really easy to forget that when you're in the middle, right? Sure. It's so serpentine and it weaves and bends and, you know, labyrinths just so your listeners, you know, are really clear is something, it's not a maze. You can't hit a dead end. There are not different turnoffs to different paths. A labyrinth is one path. You enter, you know, from some outside channel and then it weaves and turns. And sometimes the the circuitous route is long and sometimes they're shorter and and switch backs almost until you ultimately you know you can't get lost and there's only one you know one step after another and eventually in that metaphor eventually if you walk a labyrinth you get into the middle and it's a beautiful meditation practice you can kind of ask questions you can you know, look for guidance as you're walking. And, and like any meditation, your mind is going to spin into different spaces and and you're going to guide yourself back to your breath into each step. And each labyrinth meditation will bring a different revelation in the way, you know, any meditation practice does where you, the end of that practice on that particular day, certain wisdom rises and you go to your journal and you write it down. And, and that's, you know, the daily daily wisdom experience. And then you move on to the next day, you know, it just keeps, keeps going like that. But yes, you're never lost in a labyrinth. And we are all, you know, that's the metaphor for life is in sometimes we get so off track and we do whatever it is that we do. That's all kind of feels all messed up or wrong or things happen to us and we get stuck in places of injury or harm or, and, uh, but you know, it's one step and, after another, next breath occurs. And yeah, I think there's something innately hopeful in that as you just keep stepping forward. So that's the same thing we need, that kind of resilience that can be helpful with the political arena for certain. Some of this, you know, I know my mom was outraged about Roe v. Wade. We didn't, we already do this. Didn't we already take care of this? And that kind of, oh, that sinking feeling inside that so many felt um, the realization that, gosh, here we are again. And this happens with the labyrinth that you kind of weave back or, or I love to think about a spiral. So the spiral where you pass over and over again, past a similar spot, you go down, you go to the left, you go up and you go to the right, you go, and it, you know, you keep passing by the same spot, but it's not ever exactly the same. So here we are again, with abortion rights. And it's not the same as it was for my mother in that generation. It's, it's a new moment. And women like me and you exist. I've lived 40, we have lived 40 something years. Just, I never took for granted my rights to have an abortion. But I think that it's just something that was just foundational, just part of the fiber of our understanding of the world. And it's what I know I want. I imagine you want as well for your daughter to have those same absolute, clear, easy rights. Not that it's easy, an easy process, but that you should have those rights. You know, one of the things I think a lesson I carry with me from labyrinth walking is it, it is always when you feel furthest away that you are really closest to center. Right. I always feel like, man, I'm on the outer edge. There's no way I'm ever going to make it to the center of this circle. 
And then somehow almost immediately you've been spit into the center. And there's something powerful about that in moments that feel unclear or lost or dark in some way is, you know, we, it's just that next step. It's just that next step. You have no idea how close or far you are from that center point. I really love the way you put that to Meryl, because I think that's something that most people want to pretend is not true, but we really never know what is happening next. And again, we set up our individually, societally, we set up all kinds of ways so that we have ultimate control over as many things as possible. And ultimately, we just don't. <laughs> and I, I kind of, there's something in me that really loves that. And I think there's, there's real meditation yoga practice. There's a consciousness that you can encourage within yourself to open to that mystery, to set up enough kind of guardrails for yourself, or not even guardrails, like anchors that kind of keep you tethered. So you, you have some surety, you have some connection to center, and you know that no matter what occurs, you're going to flow through it. And sometimes you'll flow through beautifully. I think the other part that I really like to focus on is that many times we're not going to flow through beautifully at all. It's going to feel like horrible and it's going to be messy. And I think that's reality that a lot of people like to pretend isn't there. We like to hide our messy stuff and hide our unsurety or what we don't know. And, and I, I think it's a shame. I think the more we can say, I, I don't know the more we might free each other to say, well, I don't know. And then we might come together and figure stuff out. And I think that's part of what the circle of song work has done. And this is what it did for me 20 years ago when I first learned and came together in, in kind of conscious circle to sing sacred music. And we were singing in all different languages and everyone was exploring. Everyone was just at the beginning of, of interfaith ministry, you know, explorations and, and becoming yoga teachers and all of that sort of new, you know, openness. And, and then you, you come together and you kind of figure it out together. And I, I want to incorporate the word village into my teaching more because I found over the years, gosh, it's been critical to create a village coming from Massachusetts and then New York city. And then I lived in France for a while. Those cultures, New York city life was like, I never met any of my neighbors. Nobody knew their neighbors. You pretended nobody existed on the road. You're surrounded by so many people all the time. And you sort of, <laughs> you know, block all those people out. You're like, no, I got it. I can do it all by myself. And I'm going to do everything, <laughs> you know, independent. And, you know, that, that was my experience as a 20 something year old with all I was experiencing. I'm not saying that's how all New York is or anything, but <laughs> because we certainly knew how to come together at 9-11. And that was an incredible moment of, of coming together with others but more and more, as I guess I have children and bringing up a family, you just, you need people to help you out, to do all the things and let us consciously create villages. That's the other part about Circle of Song is we're not trying to create like best friend gatherings. We're not all connected to like, oh, I'm going to become so intertwined in your life that I'm in, you know, at your house for all the holidays or dinner and all of that. It's, it's more like, acknowledging the greater community and that we have so much that we can unite around 
for the greater good of all. And that, yes, beautiful friendships have been forged. And especially from my early 20s, those are some of my dearest friends now. But it was never set up like that. It was set up to be a, a conscious community of, of support for the greater good, not just for ourselves, for the greater good. We chant. That's the other thing about mantra and chanting is you're not only doing it for yourself, but the meaning of those mantras or whatever it is you're chanting about, it's an offering. You're, you're giving it over to the, the greater world, to the energetic highways. <laughs> you know, uh, I said this. I say this a lot when you chant to a particular a particular mantra, Om Mane Padme Hung is one. It's a compassion mantra. They sing it round 24 hours, around the clock in the Tibetan monasteries, Om Mane Padme Hung, to bring forth compassion. When you chant on Om Mane Padme Hung here in Atlanta in your little room here, you jump on that highway that's already established. People have already been chanting for, for years Centuries, they've been chanting this chant. There's a highway, there's an established path. That's like a new, you know, off you go <laughs> onto that path. And it can be very connective and very comforting. And you, you step into that greater village or the global consciousness when you chant. I, I'm just, you know, loving that our conversation went here. I, I have spent so much time thinking about community and village and What's missing and the story, you know, I'm like a little surprised I'm going to share this, but I'm going to just going to, you know, I, we don't talk on the phone every day. We're not that kind of friends, right? We talk a couple times a quarter, I guess. And Shanali was, uh, joined my elemental awakening group as a facilitator to offer mantra or chant to the elements. And at the end of that group, I asked her to stay on a call because I just needed somebody. And I told her what I was feeling and I cried and she didn't fix anything. I didn't fix it. We didn't do anything. But because Shanali was part of that community, it gave me the space to say something and feel something that had been brewing and I didn't have a place to acknowledge it. And it now, you know, a month later, roughly, it's like allowing me to be with that and think through that in a way that doesn't feel all tight and scary and isolating. And, you know, we haven't spoken about it since so it's, but that to me, as you were talking about village, I'm like, that is village. That is village. When I needed somebody, there was somebody there. And I don't think we have, we, the greater world has a lot of that. Not enough of it for sure. There's some of it in pockets. I'm sure people will be saying, oh, but I have these people that I share, you know, my, my stuff with. And, and that, again, it's, it's different when you're sitting in a sacred space with people that aren't necessarily your inner circle there's a larger container you start to realize there's a, and we get to together get some of that through our systems more efficiently or more quickly or more easily because it's, it's held by so many other compassionate, loving people who want what's you know, want you to be in your best kind of way moving through the world. 
that's the other thing about village is you get, and I talk about this in my, my yoga classes a lot. I've been asking a lot of this is like to close your eyes to think of the other people in the room or the people online, because they're still doing online everything. So people in the greater community of the class and, and invite them, like give them permission to do absolutely what is best for them in that moment. So if it means lying down or, you know, putting their forehead to the ground or whatever it is that they need in that moment, give them permission and then, and then take a breath in and receive that permission from others. If you step into a room and you think to yourself, I wish everybody would step into the action or the moment that they feel most grounded and rooted and authentic, it gives all kinds of space for some really beautiful change from what we usually experience, which is uncertainty and, oh, they're looking at me weird and, oh, should I do that? And all that doubt and all that fear, it kind of lets that go, lets it lift. And I like that. And that sort of takes me to one other thing. I really wanted to, and maybe you'll prompt me, but I want to mention Threshold Choir again, you mentioned, but I'm singing with a group, with a choir right now that's just changing my life. It's absolutely tapping me into some deeper level of connection, deeper, deeper experience of love. We sing at the bedside of the dying. And I actually had my first ever experience of that with this choir just recently because everything's been closed and shut through the pandemic. So we finally, for the first time as a, a kind of new group got together and into a hospice and got to sing not only for people who are dying on the threshold, on the brink, but we got to sing for a gentleman who had just passed. <sighs> that is just heart opening blasting <laughs> open and further again this is all so recent but further bringing the threshold choir into my circle of song work so we're not only singing for the dying but I love the songs that we're singing non-denominational choir and the songs are simple and they're about comfort and about presence and about being loved and held and it's this respect for every single one of us, every single human to just be treated as a human and to be valued as a human. And we sang these songs, not only for the dying, but in circle of song, we came and sang these songs for the living, for those of us and everyone in my, everyone I know is busting their butts at this thing called life. Everybody is working to make ends meet, trying to eat good foods, going to the games to have a good time, you know, connecting with family for birthdays and, and every, everyone's really trying so hard to do good, be good, do this thing called life. And to this music that Threshold sings is comfort. It's pure comfort. It says you are enough, that you are doing an amazing job, that you are... You are loved just as you are. And oh my gosh, it, it just felt like a whole nother level. And I've been singing to people. <laughs> I've been singing to people for 20 years and suddenly it's, couldn't believe it. it's like catapulted even, even more into love. Sounds kind of corny, but love. Yep. No, it doesn't sound corny at all. And you know what it makes me think of is 
you as a leader of songs, as a singer, is in a way completing a cycle, right? That you're you're hitting that threshold between death and life. And that moment, you know, that we say death and we all get so scared, but really it's like, and here's the new beginning. And so then you're bringing it back. At, like, I just feel the fullness of a circle as you're talking about that. I can feel it completely, how it's an unbelievably uniting, healing thing that you have done as an offerer, if that's the right word, and are bringing back to those of us who are lucky enough to receive it. Yeah, I feel like we, and that this is the work, the death care work, the end of life care work. I was studied with Narinder Bazin last year, her nine keys program and became a death doula or midwife or end of life care. There's many different ways you can do that. And I'm just stepping into that work and it, it death. And I did this in my births. I had two home births and I did a lot of work there to come to realize or know for the first time that birth is a natural process. And I was lucky enough. Uh, not everyone will, will be as lucky as I was to be able to have that, those types of experiences, whatever your birth experiences are absolutely as they're meant to be. And, um, but birth going through those experiences that we are all, you know, birth is a natural process in the same exact way, death, which is, can be highly medicalized, just like birth for good reasons and then not so good reasons, right? They, they're skewed um, practices in our medical system for birth and for death. And I think that it just helps anchor. It's been helpful for me personally, I've needed to work into this, that death though is a natural experience. And I think it's Barbara Carnes, who's a great death doula midwife uh, teacher of end of care practices said recently, like, Death does not need to be medicated. It does not need to be medicalized, I should say. It's a natural process. You can die at home. As I've been grateful to have that experience, my grandparents all died at home in really beautiful, non-medicalized ways. And then I got to sing. The inspiration for singing with the Threshold Choir was that I got to sing for my, my husband's grandmother who died. She was in a dementia ward, so she didn't die at home, but she, she passed in a really beautiful way. Um, Thanksgiving many years ago, but I got to sing for her and some of her agitation at the end of life and bring a sense of calm to that room, to all the people, not just grandma, but all the people in that room, the song, the sound of song just immediately reminded people to breathe. It all comes back to breath. And death is about taking your last breath. It's about letting go of breath. Shanali, I need you to sing to us. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to sing to us? I want to sing this uh, this song that we were saying. We got to go sing at the polls. So it's it's not the most soothing song. It's more of like a, oh, yes, we got to go do it song. And it's called uh, To the Surface She Rises. I learned it from a, a friend who used to live in Atlanta, Jenny Blair. And she learned it from a woman down in, in Mexico. I think they're at Yandara. So it's been, and it was passed to her from someone else. It's been passed, 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 passed at least a couple times. And, it, and I've changed it a little. It's the original song was meant to be sung to Pachamama, which is the earth kind of earth goddess. And I've changed the words a little bit and made it my own to honor women. Uh, again, this is a sort of post Roe v. Wade, you know, creation that has 
that we've sung every week. We did eight weeks of Circle of Song. Every week we sang this song. Um, this was the inspiration for that, that um, gathering. And I hope to do more of those gatherings in the not too distant future. Also singing to people while they are resting is one of my favorite pastimes. So not dying, but in like Shavasana and relaxing posture. So I've got some of that stuff going on coming up too. It'll be posted on my, my brand new website soon. Love it. If we want to come sing at the polls with you, for those of us that might be local and or those of us in the States that want to start your own group and go sing at the polls, hmm. perhaps we will visit your website and sign up for your newsletter. What's your website, Shanali? wisemawellness.com. So wise, W-I-S-E, ma, M-A, wellness.com is sort of the new, larger umbrella that I've created for myself out from under Shanali Yoga, which just felt a little too small given the breadth of my work now. I also have, Meryl, I have to mention the original reason I wanted to be on your podcast was I released an album back in February of 2022. I know. Oh my God. How did we not talk about How that? How did we There's not talk so about it? There's so many things to talk about. But uh, you can check all that out. It's up on my website. It's all sacred music. The Gayatri Mantra is up there. There's some you know, lyrics and meanings and such for all these um, songs that I share. And hopefully it's the first of, hopefully there's more albums to come. While you're getting set up at the harmonium, I will say, y'all, I listen to Shanali's album, Open to Receive, nonstop. I'm not joking. I play it before almost every meditation class. It's my background music. I was literally singing to it before I started recording this interview to warm up my voice. I cannot recommend it enough. And I will also say that I happen to notice you have a free like mantra lesson offering on your website. So for those of you that listened and you're like, this is cool, but I don't know how to start wisemawellness.com, there's a little free offering that you can download and that'll be all linked in the show notes for you. Yes. Thank you. That's right. Omane Padme Hung promotes uh, compassion. Yes. Because if we could all be just a hair more compassionate understanding of other people's suffering and, and bring forth kindness and respect within ourselves, we might be able to move through some of these really complex difficulties, just with a little bit more grace, still will be messy. I think I'm really not about like, oh, pretending it won't be messy and hard. It's, it will still be messy and hard, but I think we can come at it from a, a space where there's the edges are not so sharp. We might not be hurting each other quite so much. Here's to that. Yeah. So here. Yeah. Are we ready? Mm-hmm. Okay. So take a moment to maybe straighten up through your spine or even get out of your chair and stretch for a minute. Oh, circle your head around or open up your shoulders. I'm a you know, posture practitioner, so really feeling into some of the tight places of the body before we, we sing. I'll sing, you know, maybe I'll do about three rounds of the song and maybe we'll post the lyrics in the show notes so you can even bring those up and sing along. The idea is that it is one thing to listen. We always say when we do mantra practice, it's one thing to listen to the mantra. Like, you know, you can go watch a football game or go to a concert, go to yeah, a football game or soccer game or whatever you go watch. It's different though when you are down there on the pitch. It's different when you do start lending your voice 
let go of what it sounds like. You have a birthright. Your voice is yours. Share it. Feel it. Not for other people, but for yourself to encourage these vibrations in your own body. This aliveness. This song is for women. Close your eyes, bring to mind women in your life that you adore. Women that have supported you and helped you along the way. Even take a moment to think back to your mother. No matter what your relationship with that woman, there is a woman in the world who birthed you. Take a moment to honor, no matter what your relationship with that woman, take a breath and honor that there is a woman in the world who, who brought you here. To the surface she rises From the fearful ways we see her face To the surface she rises Let the women breathe again today Today Pray in the honor of her way. Today we sing her name. Today we pray in the honor of her way. Today we sing. Rise up with. To the surface. 
Taking a hand over the center of the heart and the other hand on top of that one or down into the belly space. Breathe into this body. Welcome freedom for women in your life, in your community, all around our country, all around the world. Shanali, this is the second interview in a row I have cried in. Thank <laughs> you. That was beautiful. I am thinking of all the women in this country going to the polls. I am thinking of the women in Iran right now. That was so meaningful. Thank you. Thank you for today's conversation. Friends, if you want to hear more of Shanali's music uh, or see her offerings, it is wisemawellness.com. And hopefully we'll have many more conversations in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much, Meryl. I love you and the work that you are doing and how you are growing and expanding and bringing us such wonderful wisdom. Thank you so much for you. Thanks for listening to The Mindful Minute. If you're enjoying these episodes, please consider leaving me a review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps others to find this show. To learn more about my live classes, virtual meditation retreats, my meditation app, Shoreline, or to make a donation to the show, please visit MerylArnett.com. Thanks again. I'll see you next week.